Okay, this morning we are starting a brand new series called In Christ. And um, we have spent uh, the last eight weeks in a series that we called Remade. It began on Easter Sunday. And the, the idea behind Remade is that we are made new in Christ. Uh, what we want to do this time is, is we want to take a little bit different spin on in Christ. And uh, because one of the uh, primary themes of the book of Colossians, if you read, especially in the first couple of chapters, uh, the phrase that comes across all the time is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And so uh, we want to explore through the next four weeks as we look through uh, Colossians, what does it mean for us to be in Christ? Uh, what does it mean not only for us personally, but uh, who, do, who is Christ in particular uh, that it changes us to be found in him? We've spent eight weeks saying we are made new in Christ. Now let's look at who Christ is and why it's important that we find ourselves in him that we might be made brand new. So, uh, so that's really where we're headed over the course of the, the next four weeks. Um, and uh, I just want to start this series just by jumping in and uh, reading in, to you from Colossians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23 today. So Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 23. Uh, you'll find the uh, passage up there on the screen. Uh, you have Bibles in front of you. Also, those of you that are smartphone users, if you have the Bible app that is published by YouVersion, uh, you can go to the live section of that app, and uh, you'll find my sermon notes there. The scripture is right there for you. Uh, we also encourage you to share prayer requests through that app. Uh, that's a great way to share how we might be able to pray for you because I want you to know that if you submit a prayer request through that app, if you submit a prayer request through your connection card that we'll fill out later, uh, we have a team of people ready uh, to pray for you and whatever, uh, whatever, whatever it is in your life that you need lifted up before the Lord. So uh, we're excited to pray for you. It's our honor and our privilege to do that. And so we encourage you to share that prayer request with us. So, uh, so lots of ways to get God's word in your hand. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 23. Uh, let me read it, and you all can follow along. I'll be reading from the, the TNIV version today. Uh, it says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, and the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or in things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, that was shed on the cross. Now, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of, the e because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is good news, church. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel... Now, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, identifies himself as the writer. I have become a servant. 
Now, right from the very beginning, what Paul wants to establish is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, uh, if you've been around Christianity for a while, uh, you may have heard this term, Trinity. And uh, the the belief in the Trinity, it's a biblical idea. Uh, It's been verified through generations of of Christian scholars and and Christian practice, uh, verified right out here out of the scripture. But the idea of the Trinity is that God exists as three persons and that each person in the Trinity serve a different purpose uh, or or a different um, function in fulfilling God's purposes. And it's all very uh, difficult to understand, this idea that, that God is one and yet exists as three. And uh, for a long time, people have tried to come up with illustrations to help us understand this truth. Uh, and some of those illustrations are like water. Water can exist as a solid in ice. It can exist as a liquid in water. It can exist as a gas or steam. And so it's all water. It's all one thing, but it can exist in three different ways or entities. Uh, Some people have also tried to say that God is like an egg. Now, I'm not totally comfortable with that when you're comparing the God of the universe, the all-powerful God, with an egg. But uh, an egg has three parts to it. It has the shell, it has the white, and it has the yolk. And so uh, lots of people have tried to come up with illustrations to help us get a handle on how do we begin to understand this idea uh, that God is one and yet exists as Trinity. Uh, but ultimately, all of these illustrations break down. Uh, ultimately, this is, uh, this is beyond our understanding to fully grasp. But we can know from Scripture and from the evidence of Scripture that it is indeed true. God is one exist as three persons. Now, what we tend to do, though, is we take the Trinity and we create a hierarchy of the members of the Trinity in our mind. Now, we would probably never admit this, but functionally, in the way in which we live our lives, this is often how it plays out. Uh, We we create a hierarchy within the Trinity. In other words, God, the Father, the, the, the big guy upstairs, we could say, is the coolest member of the Trinity, right? He's God the Father, he's coolest, he's right on top, he's number one. And then, we, in, the, in, then in the hierarchy of our mind, we say, well, Jesus is an obvious number two. Uh, he's, 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 he's great, and he's like, you know, he died for our sins, and he was resurrected to defeat death. But he's not quite as cool as God the Father, but he's still really great. And so in, the, in, in, in thinking about the Trinity, is this true? I mean, you guys are looking at me like... I'm a heretic. I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is how we think about it a lot of times, okay? So before you write that email, just hold on and let me get through it, okay? Uh, we, we often think, okay, God is the coolest. Jesus is, is really, really close, but not quite as cool. And, and then we have God, the Holy Spirit, which is sort of necessary, but often pushed to the side, often forgotten. And this is how, in our lives, we operate. Uh, in accordance with, with how we live our Christian lives, we often create this hierarchy of the Trinity. Uh, but what Paul wants to say to us right here at the very beginning in Colossians is that Jesus is, is the picture, the image of the invisible God. It's as though someone were in the very next room. You could hear them, you could feel them, you could sense them, but you just couldn't see them. But if only you could step out into the hallway where there was a mirror in the hallway that that shined into the room, you might get a mirror image of this person that you hear and that you sense and that you feel. And if if we take that illustration 
uh, further, what Paul wants to say to us is that Jesus is the person that we see in the mirror when we look at God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It, it, it isn't that he is, he is, uh, it's not, it isn't that he's number two in the hierarchy of the Trinity. It isn't that he's cool, but not quite as cool. He is, he is God made flesh. If you want to see God, look at Jesus, Paul says. If you want to know what God is like, look at the life of Jesus. If you want to know what, God would, would, what, what God's character is, look at the character of Jesus. Paul wants to break down this hierarchy that we tend to live in and, and say to us that all members of the Trinity are, are, are co-equal with one another. There is no hierarchy of one being better than the other. They are each essential in our Christian lives. And so, so he says to this, in, in other words, let me say this to you. A lot of times we think of Jesus as being sort of God's emergency plan. That, that God sort of creates the world, uh, Garden of Eden, everything is going well until Adam and Eve sin, and then all of a sudden humanity has fallen, they've been disobedient to God. And, and, and a lot of times we tend to think like, oh man, like, like God sort of has this emergency moment and says, what am I going to do now? I know, I'll create Jesus who will die on a cross for the world and then be resurrected. And that simply is not true. Jesus is not a created being. He is an incarnated being. In other words, he's coexistent, co-eternal, co-equal with God and the Holy Spirit, but incarnated at Christmas. He puts on flesh at Christmas to live a life that would serve as a model for us to die that he might be our savior and to resurrect so that he might give us life, okay? A lot of times we think of Jesus as, um, we think of Jesus as like God's sort of plan B. Now again, we would never admit this. I'm just saying like in practice, this is often what it looks like. We think of Jesus as God's plan B. What am I going to do now? I've got to save the world. Okay, I must have a son, so I'll create him. Or we think of Jesus as being sort of a sidekick to God, like, uh, you know, Jesus is like Batman to Robin, or, or he's like Tonto to the Lone Ranger, or he's like Costello to Abbott, you know, and, and all of these kind of like duos, and we think like, like Jesus is like the number two guy, and now for my number two man, his name, number two, okay? That's a movie reference, see if you got it, okay? So, haha, some of you are like, no idea, that's probably good, all right. Because those of you that know what movie that's from, you're like, I cannot believe he just said that, all right? It's all good, it's all good. I live in the real world just like you. Okay, um, so, so Jesus is not the sidekick to God. Paul wants to say to us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. Now, you, you might, you might uh, let me say, also say this. G, or Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of my favorite books, by the way. We don't know who wrote it. We just know that he was a preacher. And the book of Hebrews is a sermon, so I love it. And uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And, and, and you might say, well, this, this just feels like a barrel of fish hooks. You know, I mean, we're in a seminary class. Uh, this is important to understand right off the bat in this series because before we ever understand what it means to be in Christ, 
before we ever understand what, what the, the work that Christ did on our behalf, we have to understand who Christ is. And he is the picture of the invisible God, the very radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Paul goes on to say in this very first verse that we're looking at, in the second part of verse 15, he says he's also the firstborn over all creation. And that is a way of saying what I have just said, that, that Paul, Paul wants us to understand Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. In other words, Jesus himself is not part of creation. He wasn't God's plan B. He isn't a created being. He is an incarnated being. Incarnation meaning God put on flesh and became, and, and the word became flesh. The word of God became flesh. So he wants us to understand that there is no hierarchy within the Trinity and that Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's some good stuff right there. That's good stuff, all right? So then, what, what, so again, we have to understand who Christ is in order to understand what he did. And what, that's exactly what Paul does. He says, I want you to understand who Christ is, the picture of the invisible God, and the firstborn over all creation, so that we can go on in order to understand what is it that he has done. And what does Paul say that he's done? In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. I love this phrase. All things have been created through him and for him. Genesis tells us that when God was creating the world that he spoke it into being. And then God said. John's gospel tells us that that the word of God was, in the beginning, the, was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. In other words, this, this word of God, and God speaking creation into existence, I think we can understand from that that the creative agent in creation, God's creative agent, is Jesus himself. Is Jesus himself. The word of God speaking creation into existence. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever put those two together? That the creative agent of God is the pre-incarnate Jesus himself speaking things into being. In other words, all things were created through him. That is to say that all the beauty of creation is because of Jesus. The mountains in all their majestic beauty or the sweet smell of a spring rain or the beauty of a flower in bloom or the orange glow of a sunset or when the sun, when it's setting, is behind the clouds and and the rays peek out from the clouds and you, you have this just this beautiful sunset. All of those point to the creative beauty of Jesus. All of those point to the creative beauty of the creator himself. Yeah, but in this world, it ain't all sunsets and and blooms, is it? (laughs) 
We also have all kinds of, of disaster and disease and destruction and all kinds of things that we would point to and not say, wow, that's beautiful, and it points to the glory of our Creator. But we would have things that we would point to and say, what kind of God would allow that? Right? And so we, 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 we sort of have this, this beauty, yet at the same time we have this mess. And it's like this beautiful mess. Or it's this messy beauty. We, we have both, and they live in tension. And, and I think what Scripture makes very clear to us is that all the beauty of creation is because of Jesus, and all the brokenness of our world is being redeemed by Jesus. Is being redeemed by Jesus. All the ugliness, all the death and decay and disease and disaster. In other words, what Paul wants to say to us by saying that all things are made through him and that all things are made for him is this idea that standing as as you and I live in sort of this gap between a creation that's broken and not as God intended it to be, intended it to be, but also as we look forward to a new creation where all things will be made will be will be made right and be put back to right. As we look forward to that. And as we live in the middle of this beautiful mess and this messy beauty, the the one person that's holding those two together, what, what creation was made through him and all of creation is made for him, this person that stands in the gap and holds together both the, the certainty of new creation and both the redemption of the old creation, the person that stands right in the middle is Jesus himself, church. That as you and I live in this messy gap, where we look forward to all that God will bring, and yet we look back to all the brokenness that we experience, and we, we sit in the middle of that. We know for certain that to Jesus himself holds together both creation and new creation. That's what Paul wants us to say, wants us to know. And he has to establish, in order for us to get that point, in order for us to understand that, he has to first establish what we've established here, and this is who Jesus is. He's not, he's not the sidekick to God. He's the very image of the invisible God. He's God made visible. He's God put on flesh. And if we can understand that, then we see that he has authority to stand right in the gap. To redeem what is broken. And to give us certainty of what is to come. So Jesus, all things are made through him. And then all things are made for him. The through him is the creation part, which became broken. And the for him part is that all things are being redeemed through him. Let me also just say, and this is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important for us to understand that creation and the narrative of God is moving. In other words, as we look forward to all that God will bring and the redemption of all things and all things be put back to right and new creation, whatever kind of label you want to put on that, as we look forward to this future hope that we have as Christians, it is not simply a return to Eden. It is, it is a movement forward from Eden. It is a movement forward from creation into new creation. That even if you took sin out of the Bible, right? If you took like Genesis 3 through Revelation 19, and you just, first of all, you'd have a pamphlet. If you took that part out, you still have movement. You're going from a garden to a city. You're going from creation to new creation. The narrative is still going somewhere, in other words. 
So we're not, the goal is not simply to go back and just return to Eden, but it's to, to move forward into God's new creation and holding it right in the middle. Holding both of those together and pulling them together is Jesus himself, who all things were made through him and all things were made for him. And I love, I love where this goes from here. In him, all things were created, Paul says. In him, all things hold together, this, mid, this sitting in the gap, this middle part. And in him, all the fullness of God dwells so that through him, all things might be reconciled to him. In him, through him, to him. Oh, come on. That's good. In him, all things were created so that through him, all things might be reconciled to him. In him, through him, and then to him. If you you don't get anything else out of this morning's message, I want you to catch that phrase. In him, through him, to him. In him, all things were created so that through him, all things might be reconciled to him. It's all about him. In other words, we could say it this way. For those of you that are like, I don't like cute little sayings, here it is fleshed out. Jesus, through whom the world was made, is the same Jesus through whom the world is now being redeemed. Jesus, in whom the world was made, is the same Jesus through whom the world is now being redeemed. Now, I know that some of you are not going to like this. And it might frustrate you because you, you, you feel like God is getting all the credit for the beauty, but, but none of the credit or none of what is due him for things that have gone wrong. In other words, he created the good things and then things went bad. Shouldn't he get the blame for that? Why does he get the praise for the good things? And then we also say that he's redeeming all of these other things, right? I mean, some of you, that's where you're at. And I understand that. But let me say this to you. We have been created to love our creator. And no love is genuine where there is no opportunity to reject it. No love is genuine where there's not opportunity to reject it. And so a loving God creates a world so that he might have, so that he might um, create those that we might love him in return. But with true love comes the opportunity to reject and that's what we have done. And still out of his infinite love, he sends Jesus so that through him, all things might be reconciled to him. So that even in our brokenness, even in our disobedience, even in our unfaithfulness, God's invitation is always for us to return. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you've been. But let me say to you today that the invitation that God is placing on your life is always for you to return to him. Maybe you've known him, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you've come to, to a decision uh, for him and then you've, you've lost your way, you've rejected him, whatever has happened, maybe you were hurt by someone in the church. I don't know what your story holds today, but I can say on the certainty of God's word that God loves you deeply and his, he is continually inviting you to come back. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that in him all things were created And even though those things might reject him, it is the infinite love of God that through him all things might be reconciled to him.
in him, through him, to him. That's the beauty of the gospel message. So Paul then goes on to say, he establishes some really great truth. And the truth is, I suppose, is that that's what we've been doing this morning, is we've just been sort of laying a theological foundation of who Christ is and what he's done and God's infinite love for you and how God wants to reconcile the world through Christ. He wants to reconcile you through Christ to God. Don't, don't this morning sort of relegate the message to the world. Make it personal as well. Don't assume that the gospel message is for someone else. Don't assume based on, on your action or where you've been or the way you've rejected God that, that the gospel is fine for other people. Don't be thinking in your heart right now, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. But would you, do us, would you do me a favor? Would you do God a favor and listen to the message and allow it to sink into your own heart that God wants you to be reconciled to him through Christ? That's the beauty of the gospel message. And so what Paul does, he lays this theological foundation and then he gets very practical and starts talking to the Christians in Colossae or the Colossians, right? He gets very, he gets very uh, sort of in your face. And he says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now you have been reconciled by, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you will hold on to the gospel if you will hold on to the gospel. This is a beautiful passage. He lays this theological truth and foundation, and he says, you once were enemies because of your evil behavior, but now you've been reconciled through Christ that you might be presented to him without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, without blame, that you might be declared holy in Christ. Is it because of all the great things that you've done? Is it because you got A's? Is it because you have a, you're good at your job? Is it because you were promoted? None of those things. It's because as we place ourselves in Christ, God looks at us and doesn't see a spot or a blemish, and he sees one who's been made holy through faith in him that has reconciled all things to himself. You see the beauty of what it means to be in Christ? I think sort of the, that, that's the explicit message. It's a beautiful message. It's the gospel message. But I think one of the implicit things here is, is that Paul also wants to say to the Colossians that Christ, as a result of all of this, Christ must be the center of our faith. That, that regardless of whatever we call faith, whatever sort of practice, Christian practice that we have, Christian faith that we have, at the center of that must be the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he, and he encourages the Christians in Colossae with this. And he encourages them with their faith. You once were alienated. Now you've been reconciled through Christ's death. If you will continue in your faith. And if you will hold on to the hope of the gospel. Some of you have traded the hope of the gospel for a false hope in something else. And it is God's invitation to you today to come back to a true and authentic and mature hope. Do not trade the, the, the good hope of the gospel for some other kind of false hope that the world offers. It is a bad trade. 
and it will leave you disappointed. And so God, Paul says, you've been reconciled through the death of Christ that you might be presented holy and blameless if you will hold on to the hope of the gospel. And I believe that for some of us today, that's, that's, that's God's call to us this morning, is to hold on to the hope of the gospel and to, to, to trade whatever kind of hope we're grasping onto and to, to grasp onto the firm hold of hope that the gospel offers us, regardless of our circumstances. So Paul says, this must be the center of your faith. You know, I think it's really easy for us to make other things the center of our faith. And uh, I think one of the most common things is that we tend to make ourselves the center of our own faith. How in the world can we do that? A lot of times when we get into difficult situations, when we get into circumstances that require faith from us, many times our default reaction is to try to have enough faith in our ability to have enough faith. Does that make sense? In other words, our faith is in our ability to conjure up enough faith to get us through this situation. And so we say to ourselves, if I just had enough faith, Your faith is not in Christ if you say that. Your faith is in your ability to have faith. Guess what? You will probably let yourself down every time. If your faith is in your ability to have faith. So you get into a difficult situation. If I could just have enough faith. As you approach a decision of faith in Christ, we often say, if I could just have enough faith to believe. We're like right on the brink we, we, we listen to the gospel message, we hear it, we believe it in our head, but we can't move it to our heart. Oftentimes the barrier between our head and our heart is I just don't have enough faith to believe. I wish I could have faith like you. In those moments, we're not really putting our faith in Christ. The barrier is we're trying to put our faith in our ability to have faith. And what Paul says to us implicitly through this truth shared in Colossians is that if we are to be in Christ, then the center of our faith must be in Christ and not in ourselves. So oftentimes it's easy for us to have put our, place our faith in our ability to have faith, which is really about us. And it's placing our faith on ourselves. The other thing that we tend to do is that we place our faith in other people. So when it's about me and I place my faith in myself, I place my faith in my own ability to conjure up faith. But equally what I see happening is is people place their faith in the ability of others to have faith. And so we see someone trip up in their faith. and, And we perceive them not to have enough faith in this situation. Or we perceive them to not live according to the faith that they profess. And we say, well, what good is faith? if they can't have enough faith to live like they say they have faith too. And all of a sudden, you just get lost in anybody's faith but faith in Christ. So on one side, we tend to have faith in our own ability to have faith. And then on the other side, we tend to place our faith 
on other people's ability to have faith. But Paul wants to say that your faith must land squarely on the person through whom all things were created, in whom all things were created, through whom all things might be reconciled to him. The one who stands in the middle, redeeming all that is broken in this creation and giving us certainty of all that is to come in God's new creation. This person who stands in the middle is is where our faith must lie. That's Paul's message to us today. And so the first part, as we begin this series, the first part of what it means to have faith or, or to be in Christ is to place our faith squarely on Christ. He must be the center of our faith. You know, the gospel message or the, or the, the biblical narrative is not about the faithfulness of, of humankind. Right? I mean, if we were just to have faith in our own ability to conjure up faith or faith in other people's ability to conjure up faith, the, the Bible would tell us stories after story after story of all the great faith of these heroes. Now, we have stories of great faith, but predominantly the scripture is about not the faithfulness of man, but the faithfulness of God in the midst of a faithless people. That's predominantly what the gospel story is about. And then every now and then you have a hero of faith who steps up. But over and over and over again, we see evidence of people who fall, people who are broken, people who don't perform faith in Christ or in God perfectly, and it is God who rescues them over and over and over again. Where must our faith lie? It must lie in the faithfulness of God, the one who is faithful despite our faithlessness and despite our brokenness and our disobedience. That's where our faith must lie. So this passage teaches us that Christ is the center. It teaches us this truth in him, through him, and to him. And I want you to to know that we do our best to live this out as a church. This isn't something that I'm encouraging you to do, that we don't try to do corporately as a church. But but every single week, uh, I do my best to make sure that the sermon and the message that I give points you to Christ. In other words, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to give you three points that make you feel really good. I, I am here to tell you about the in-your-face revolutionary cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't always do that perfectly, but that is my goal every single time that I, I stand in front of you to share a message that God has laid on my heart is to point you to the cross of Christ and is not to give you three points just so that you can write them down and fill in the blank and feel really good and say, oh, that was great. Um, I I hope that you do think it's great and I hope that you do leave encouraged, but I hope that you leave encouraged by Christ. I hope that you leave challenged by Christ and what he wants to say to you. So we try to live this out as a church and this is also why we come to communion every single Sunday. At the end, regardless of what we've talked about, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. At the end of every message, at the end of every service, we want to come back to the Lord's table 
and remember that Christ has died on the cross for us, that his body has been broken, that his blood has been spilled out, that we might have life. So everything we do on Sunday morning is to keep Christ at the center of our faith. And so we're doing our best to live this out. A couple more thoughts before we close. The The more you get to know and to know about Christ, the more you understand who the true God is and what he's done and who you are. And then as a result, what it means to live in him and for him. Let me say that again. The more you get to know and know about Christ, the more you understand who the true God is and what he's done and who you are. And as a result, then we understand what it means to live in him and for him. For those of you that don't like really long fleshed out sentences, I have a shorter version. I'm just trying to please everybody. I'm trying to, I'm trying to knock on everybody's door this morning. Here's a short version. Christianity is about Christ. How about that? Now you guys are laughing because you know that's so profound, right? Christianity is about Christ. I wonder if we could be really discerning together this week and in your own life. How many times is, is, our, is, is your Christianity about something other than Christ? Christianity is about Christ, and we all kind of laugh, like, oh, duh, that's obvious. You know, I'm not going to put that on Twitter because that's obvious. You know, people won't like that, all that kind of stuff. But how many times, if we're really discerning and if we're really honest, is our Christian faith about something other than relationship and communion with the God in whom all things were created, through whom all things might be reconciled to him? Is your Christianity about something other than Christ? Christianity is not a set of rules that you take up. It isn't a system that you adopt. It is a life centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how the world has been forever changed because of him. We've been doing these things called next steps And uh, we've been trying to equip you with very practical ways of how you can apply the message. And so I want to explain the next steps, and then we'll invite everyone to fill out your cards here before we leave. And we're actually going to do a full communion liturgy this morning as well. Um, But but let me explain to you some next steps. Because as I was thinking about this and and where we should land... um, you know, there are lots of, of ways that we can apply this message. There are lots of ways where I, th- I believe that God is challenging us and, and really tugging on our hearts and, and inviting us in. But let, let me walk you through some next steps that, that I think are just really good ways for us to begin centering our life on Christ so that what we do in our Christian faith is really about communion with him. And, and the first thing is that his word is absolutely essential to relationship and communion with him. Uh, that, that that is that God's authority is often exercised in our life through the reading of these, of these pages. And so if you have not picked up your Bible in a long time, maybe your next step today is to begin a Bible reading plan. Now, Bible reading plans have an inherent danger if we approach them with an achievement mindset. 
a mindset that either says, oh, look at me, I completed it, aren't I great? Or a, a mindset that says, oh, I didn't complete it, now I'm filled with guilt, aren't I terrible? Use a Bible reading plan as it's intended to give you a structure and a plan by which you, pick, you can begin ingesting God's word. And so I would encourage you, the, the app that, uh, that we use to, to broadcast our sermon notes, that, that Bible app, is, is available to you. They have great reading plans. Some of you today, that's your next step, is you need to get into God's word and begin a reading plan. Now, some of you... Um, also, for some of you, you have your quiet time and you're, and you're reading and all of that, but you're inconsistent in your quiet time. And uh, what I would encourage you to do is that you need to structure that time. Uh, you need to begin structuring that time. In other words, by structure, I mean find a, a consistent place and a consistent time and a consistent posture that your body takes on uh, during your quiet time. That if you will have a consistent time, that's half the battle, right? We live in a busy culture. We live in, you know, you're busy, I'm busy. You have lots of responsibility. We all have lots of responsibility. If you can find a consistent time for your quiet time, that's half the battle. But I would also encourage you to go a couple of steps further. Have a consistent place so that you know that when I enter this space, this is my space to commune with God. And then also a particular posture. Maybe it's on your knees. Maybe it's sitting down. Some of, you, some of you, if you sit in a recliner and try to do your quiet time, you are asleep. And you're like, for my prayers today, I just slept in the Lord. Okay. <laughs> like maybe that's appropriate if you've been burning the candle at both ends and all of that. But as a regular practice, sleeping in the Lord is not so beneficial. Okay. Uh, you can do that in the nighttime. Some of you, you need to know that we have nighttime to sleep. Okay. Some of you young people need to hear that. 1 a.m. kind of junk. Go to bed. Okay. Um, get some sleep. All right, I'm good. I'm good. I'm over it. Um, some of you are like, man, Bible reading plan, structure. Like if I was type A, I'd be all over that, and I'm not. We have something for you too. Uh, and, and I think some of your next steps would begin to journal. I'm a type A. I can't journal if I'm not writing a sermon. You know, I'm just like, I'm, I'm not feeling it. Um, but some of you, if, if you can just like spill out, you, like your, your quiet times are more like a spilling over to the Lord, writing down prayers, journaling about what he's doing in your heart. Many of you can't even discern what he's doing in your heart unless you're saying it or writing it. And, and some of you, you've lost that practice. You need to pick it back up again. These are all ways, again, of centering our faith on Christ. A Bible reading plan without achievement. Um, a structured quiet time if you're type A like me, or if you are just more, if, you, if you're a free spirit and you need just that to write that down, to journal and just allow that time to, to move with the Lord, uh, then that's great. Because some of you, some of us want to think through our spirituality. Others of you want to feel through it. And I think there's, there's practices that can help us all make sure that our faith is centered on Christ. Okay? Okay.